Hello, this is Mark Gerson, and welcome to The Rabbi's Husband, where we are in conversation with lovers of the Bible about the biblical passage that is most meaningful, or one of the ones that's most meaningful, to him or her. And today, I am so delighted to have as my guest my new friend, Muhammad Jabara, whose magnificent book, Muhammad, the World Changer, an Intimate Portrait from St. Martin's, just came out. So, Muhammad, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Thank you so much, Mark. It's a pleasure and honor as well. Muhammad, as the uh, title of his book uh, would suggest, is a scholar of the Islamic arts, and he has a focus on the Semitic languages, including classical Arabic and biblical Hebrew. Uh, Muhammad, who is from Ottawa, Canada, has lectured to audiences all around the world. And in addition to his proficiency in all matters of theology, and particularly Islamic theology, he's a visual artist and an acclaimed calligrapher whose calligraphy is actually in this book, Muhammad the World Changer. So, Muhammad, I'm so delighted to have you as a guest today and uh, to discuss your chosen passage, which is the Song of Songs. Yes, Shir Hashirim. <laughs> so uh, tell us, what is Shir Hashirim? What is the Song of Songs? What happens in it? And why is it significant to you? So first of all, I, I would say the Bible is full of beautiful passages, and I have many favorites. And I would say that the reason Shir Hashim stands out, the Song of Songs stands out, is because of the universality of the message. Now, one thing I remember when I was a cleric is that when you are ministering to people, regardless of what religion you might follow, the dynamics are pretty much the same. Whether you are an imam, whether you're a rabbi, whether you're a priest or a pundit, uh, you might wear different hats, you might use different words, but the dynamics are pretty much the same. People have the same needs, people have the same issues, the same problems, and you have to address them in pretty much the same way. And that's what I find to be very universal, with, you know, where, where people can feel that they can understand what other people are going through. Now, when it, when it comes to Shir Hashim, what makes it so splendid as a work of literature is not just how beautiful it's written, it's in its poetry and the poetic use of words and, these, and the figurative use of, of concept, but the fact that it deals with a topic that is universal. And the topic of Shir Hashim is love at the end of the day. Love in a very sexual Correct. context. Correct, very. <laughs> now, what makes Shir Hashim so special is that it's one of the few books of, of the Tanakh, of the, of the Jewish scriptures, which most of the people on a daily basis were aware of. So most Jews or most Israelites didn't necessarily know everything in the Tanakh. They weren't familiar with maybe, uh, you know, the book of Genesis, Bereshit, etc. Like they might know a few things here and there. But the only book from what we, we seem to know right now, based on research and you found, you know, looking at the at, at the history of Israel, is that the only book that seemed to have been very popularly known among the people was Shir Hashirim. Uh, is that right? This, this was the most popular book of the Bible? One of the most popular, if not the most popular. I had no idea. I mean, I never would have guessed that. This is actually very important because, because it was so popular, it was very difficult to edit it, you know, edit out things that you didn't like. <laughs> 
So the censorship. Right. Well, and I, I guess its popularity derives from the modern expression sex sells. Yes, it does. <laughs> and and th th this was probably the most fully sexual literature available at the time. Correct. And it's so interesting that you said that it's the most sexual literature and it's the most popular. And now we have this expression sex sells, which shows yes. that must be an, an ancient truth. Correct. And part of how we know that this book was so popular is we have an, a great rabbi, Rabbi Akiva, who is very well known. Okay. So Rabbi Akiva, he raised some concerns about how people recited the book, how, how people use the book in public. And, you know, that may, gave us the indication that it was very popularly known and used. And people used to sing it. People used to chant it. Even among the, the, the Sephardic Jews, among the East, you know, the Misrahis, or the Eastern Jews, it was recited every Friday evening. And, and this is, of course, important because in, in the book, in Shir Hashirim, there is a, a mention of a, an archaic root, which is tree literal root, which is Hamada, Hamad. And, and this root is very significant because it was used in Ugaritic. So it's an ancient tree. It was used in Ugaritic. We have some uh, mention of it in Akkadian poetry. So it's an ancient word. And, and it usually revolves around something being the choiciest or something being greatly loved or amazing, something that's like special, something that stands out. And the original root signified something that you place on a pedestal that everybody wants to be like. Like, oh my God, look at that. He's, gonna, he's a Mahmad. We want to be like him. Like he's, you know, like, or, or something that we want, we desire. And this word is used in chapter 5, verse 16 of Shir Hashim, of the Song of Songs. And it's, it comes in this beautiful poetry. Um, so I'll, I'll share it with you. So it goes like this. So it's this beautiful composition where the lover is speaking to their beloved. They say, And they're talking about the palate. The palate of my beloved is so sweet like honey. And it's, it's, and it's fascinating because it almost makes you think of French kissing. <laughs> oh, well, I'm sure, I'm sure it did. That's such fascinating and so beautiful, beautifully sung. And you're so right about Rabbi Akiva. Um, Rabbi Akiva taught of the Song of Songs, Shir Shreem, all the writings, this is the whole Bible he's talking about, all the writings are holy, but the Song of Song is the holy yes. of the holies. So the popularity that you speak of maps precisely with his elevation of this as the holiest book in the Bible. And Correct. he had a lot to choose from. He said, of all the writings, and yet this is the one that he said was the holiest, which is interesting because it is so sexual. And so a lot of people would say it must be unholy, but the greatest rabbi of them all said, not only is it holy, it's the holy of holies, which I think articulates a core message of the Torah, which is that one of our charges is to elevate the physical into the spiritual, to infuse the physical with the spiritual, never to separate the two, but to combine the two, to make the physical holy. And, and that's why it says in building the tabernacle, when, when, when God says to us, I shall dwell in them, not in it. Not yes, tabernacle, in, in them. them. And we're instructed to be like God in all of our ways, all of our ways. One of our ways is sex, right? But all of our ways, there's no, that's the synagogue and you do religion there. And then that's the home and that's the workplace. And no, 
if you're a person of faith, and I presume of any faith, God is always with you. Correct. Exactly. And this union is, is part of what makes life beautiful, is that l- love makes life beautiful. Love adds to, uh, to the depth of life, gives you these dimensions of meaning. Without love, life is bland. That's right. And so this is why this, this book is so powerful, because it emphasizes love in all of these beautiful ways, right? And now going back to that passage, I was talking about chapter 5, verse 16. So now why does this you know, matter? Because I, I mentioned it in my book, because when the Prophet Muhammad was born, What year was he born? He was born in the year 570. And at his time, he was given a new name that was given to him by his grandfather. Now, his grandfather is a very special figure because he was raised by a Jewish mother until he was eight years old in a Jewish city. So Muhammad's grandfather was a Jew by Jewish law standards, by halakha. Correct, because his his great-grandmother was Jewish. Her name was Salma, and she was a direct descendant of the house of David. So, yes, so they traced their lineage to King David and, and, and thus Solomon. So you can see that there is a connection there. So hearing this... Shir Hashrim recited every Friday in this Jewish city where he was living. He heard this word, Muhammadin, like we said, Muhammadin, this Muhammad, Muhammad, Muhammad. And then when it came time to naming his grandson, wow. he gives him the name Muhammad. And it's all from now, just again, what does that word mean in the Hebrew? So Muhammad means something that is that is desirable, something that is beautiful, something that... And that's right from Shira Sharim. So the prophet, your prophet Muhammad's grandfather, hears this Shira Sharim every week in Jewish services. He falls in love with Shira Sharim, as did everybody. Yes. And, and this word Muhammad, which means desirable, was especially important to him. And so... Sticks with him. That name becomes the name of his grandson and the father of the Islamic faith. Becomes the name of his grandson. Correct. And, and now today, Muhammad is one of the most popular names in the world. Wow. And this is why this is so important, because I was given this name the day I was born. And this name... I believe was inspired by the Song of Songs. Incredible. You don't believe it. You're, you're, you're basically, you've just demonstrated it. That's incredible. So the name- Yes. <laughs> Muhammad, I had, to say I have no idea is an understatement, I had, but I had no idea. So the name Muhammad yes. comes from the Song of Songs, which Muhammad's Jewish grandfather? Yes, his, his grandfather, correct, yes. Would have heard every week in synagogue. Yes. So I'm, I'm, I'm a little reluctant to say his grandfather was Jewish because his grandfather's identity is a little, uh, it's, it's a little more complicated, but his- But at least his great grand, his Muhammad's great grandmother. Correct. She was 100% Jewish. So we, do we know how she raised her kids as Jews or not? We know that she raised him as Jewish because that was part of her agreement with her husband that her son will remain with her until he reaches uh, bar mitzvah age, after which time he could live with his father. So the arrangement was very strange because it was very peculiar for the time. So this Jewish mother, who was very independent, her name was Selma, which is, Selma is the feminine Arabized version of Shlomo, which is Solomon. Wow, fascinating. And Solomon wrote the Song of Songs. Yes, exactly. So his grandmother's name was the feminine version of Solomon in Arabic. Sorry, not his grandmother, his great-grandmother, yes. Makes a deal with her husband, who was of what faith? Her, her husband was a pagan. Well, he was, basically, he was a pagan 
of the elders of Mecca. His name was Hashim. And he was trying to marry her for many years. And she kept declining because she said, you have to... Pr- because she because he wasn't Jewish? Well, she wanted him to prove himself to become an elder and also to convert. So he did both. He proved himself and he converted to Judaism and she married him. And once she married him, she had she stipulated in the marriage contract some strange uh, clauses, which were very unusual for the time. So the first clause was that uh, if they have any children, the child would remain with her until they reach bar mitzvah age. But does that imply that she wouldn't be together with him? Because who would- So she lived independently in her Jewish town with her Jewish family. She had her own home. And basically her husband was a merchant. He lived in Mecca and he would come and visit her. How, where, where, where did she live? She lived in a city called Yathrib, which was renamed Medina. It was a Jewish city. How far is Mecca from Medina? It's approximately, in, at, at that time, it took about two weeks to get there. By caravan. So they got married deciding to live two weeks apart. Uh, Correct. (laughs) And that was unusual. You you just said that was unusual. It was unusual because when you marry at that time, the woman goes and lives with her husband and she basically assumes she loses her own identity and she's merged into her husband's identity, right? So this strong woman said... Very strong woman. She was probably saying, I, I want to be sure that my Jewish identity is maintained, so I'm not going to go to your, to your pagan town. Yes. And, and, she, and she said that my, any children we have will remain with me until they reach the age, basically 13, which is the age of bar mitzvah. And then she has a son whose name was Sheba, which is basically means uh, a wise person, somebody who's wise because she anticipated he would become a wise man. And uh, he remained with her until he was eight. Because when she, when he turned eight, his mother died, and once he, his mother died. So Muhammad's great grandmother has has a son who lives with her till he's thirteen. Until he's eight. Oh, until he's eight. But then she dies when he's eight. Yes, because he was supposed to remain with her until she was until he's thirteen. But she happened, you know, something happened, and she died. Okay. And his father actually died when he was two. So he lost by the time he was eight. He was a complete orphan. So he was taken by his family at Mecca. So this whole plan was just tragically disrupted by two premature deaths. Correct. But the eight years that he spent... So who raises... For exactly. So he was raised a Jew for eight years and also raised, you know, exposed to Hebrew, Aramaic. So he's hearing it. Whether he knew those languages or not, we, we don't know. But he was definitely exposed to them. So so where does he go? So he's eight years old. He's orphaned. What happens? His, his, uh, his uncle, his father's brother, comes and takes him to Mecca where he lives there. And one thing we know about his early childhood is that because he was raised in this, uh, you know, in this Jewish town, he had, uh, he had an accent. So he didn't speak Arabic the way the, Ar- the other Arabs spoke it. And, you know, he had to struggle. He had a, he had a bit of struggle to adjust to a new culture, a new identity, etc. That explains why you said we're not sure about his Jewish identity or faith, because by eight, he's living with his pagan uncle. Yes. But one thing that's fascinating is even, even after all this, you're talking about more than half a century later, when he names his, his grandson, he, you know, I was actually almost over 60 years later, when he names his grandson, he gives him this, this uh, name. Incredible. So some song in his childhood stayed with him. Correct. Because he may never have heard this song subsequent to being... Because he's not going to hear it at Mecca, because the Meccans are pagan. 
Incredible. We all know how important the music one hears in an early childhood is and the ideas that one learns in early childhood, but this is proving it. So this beautiful song that you just sang, he had heard that. And even though he may have heard it for the last time at eight, it never left him. And 60 years later, I guess in the custom at the time, you named your grandchildren. Yes, correct. And, and, and because he was the chief elder of Mecca, he named all the children of Mecca. Not just his grandson. And, and he gave all the children of Mecca traditional Arabic names. But this was the first time he gave someone a, a new invented name. And he was basically saving this name for his grandson, it sounds like. Correct. And that's what makes it really interesting because you know, it almost reminds me of, uh, of this film that was made, uh, you know, and they, they had a book about it. As, there was a book and it was made into a film. Have you heard of The Blue Lagoon? They made it into a film. And I, yeah, I mean, I think I saw that when I was like seven. Yes, and it's very fascinating because one thing that you realize about this film when you're watching is it's just showing you like the psychology of like these, you have these two children who lose everyone and they have to grow up on a, de a deserted island to figure out the world on their own. And when Christmas comes, they're trying to sing Christmas carols. What do they do? They just have like isolated words like jingle bells. And then they have parts of, of the American anthem. It's a mixture of all of these words that they remember. And, and what's so fascinating is, like you said, with when children are exposed to songs when they're young, you know, they're not going to remember everything. But, but particular words or phrases in these songs resonate and they remain with you. So my suspicion is that after all of these decades have passed, that this word that he had heard as a child stuck with him and resonated with him. Like, oh, this is a beautiful word. You know, I know what it means because I've been told, because we, we know that he knew what it meant because he explains why he used, used that name. And he says, because, you know, I'm giving him this name because I want him to stand out. I want him to be, you know, beloved, respected, you know, among, and, and, and I want his name to be known among the nations. I want him to be a special person. So he, he's choosing, and he's choosing, and, and I talk about this in, uh, in chapter one of my book, like the, in, you know, the passages and the description, etc. But, you know, with all of this, you can see that not only does Shir Hashim resonate with, with a Jewish audience, it resonates with anybody. And we can see that it's had its impact because now you have one of the most popular names in the world today is inspired by a, a word or a passage in Shir Hashim. What a fascinating learning. I had no idea about any of this. So, uh, Muhammad, tell us, how did you develop such uh, an affinity and affection and respect for Jewish teachings, for Jewish people? When you and I got together, it was just so obvious that, that you had such deep knowledge and affection for so much in Judaism. Did it come from this kind of study or somewhere else? Well, I would say my first affinity began when I was maybe 11, close to 12, in that within that age range, when I was memorizing the Qur'an for the first time. Oh. And as I was memorizing, and I was slowly, you know, learning a few words here and there, because classical Arabic was obviously not my mother tongue. My first language was English, believe it or not. You know, my mom reminds me that my first word was hot. <laughs> and since then, I love the heat. I don't like the cold. Then why do you live in Canada? I ask myself that question every day. <laughs> <laughs> especially when i look outside and it's freezing <laughs> you moved to florida mm -hmm. 
So going back to to those passages, I remember the second chapter of the Quran is called Surah Al-Baqarah, which is a massive chapter, which is the largest chapter in the Quran, actually. It constantly, you know, speaks to the the children of Israel in a very affectionate voice. It almost sounds like a parent who's trying really hard to appeal to their teenage child. That's what it almost sounds like to this adolescent child who's not really you know, where, where they seem a little distant, but it's like, look, I love you. I care about you. Look, you know, you're chosen. I, you know, and it, and it keeps repeating this passage over and over that you are chosen over the nations, that I've chosen you. You're my chosen people. You're my beloved people. And, and you can see that there's a lot of affection that the Quran is speaking to the Jewish people with a very affectionate voice. And, you know, seeing that and seeing a lot of passages in the Quran that require you to go into the Jewish scriptures and Jewish writings to understand because the Quran assumes that its reader has a background in the Old Testament. Yes, because I'll give you an example. There's one particular passage that says, do not do as though, as though, as some had done to Moses, <clears throat> for what befell them will also befall you. But that's it. It doesn't tell you who did what to Moses? Really? Yeah, it assumes that you've read the book of Exodus and you know the story. It's simple. So unless you're familiar with the book of Exodus, you know Shmot, you've never read it, you've not, you're not familiar with it, you're not going to know what the story's talking about. Just like, what? Who, who is he talking about? Like, what happened? It assumes that you already know. And the Quran uh, doesn't consider itself a new revelation or a new uh, religion you know, bring out a new religion, but rather it is a revival of the Abrahamic tradition. It's a revival of the tradition of Moses. It comes and says, well, you know, God gave you the Torah and the Torah is full of wisdom. The Quran repeats that so many times that the Torah is full of wisdom. It's a book of wisdom. It's a book of guidance. You know, it says, li bani Israel. It, is a, it is a source of guidance and direction for the children of Israel. It's a, it's a, the, the Quran describes it with beautiful, affectionate words. And it says, in order to succeed, you have to go back and understand the Torah. And if you're not understanding, what happens is, is that people, you know, move away from the spirit of the law. So what happens is people get stuck on, and especially at that time, the greatest uh, critique of the Quran, of the Jewish people, is that they're overly obsessed with rituals. You know, it's like, okay, how do you pray? How do you move? You know, you have to like eat like this. You have to do that. The Quran is like, rituals are nice. But remember the spirit behind it. It's not about the rituals. Don't obsess with the rituals, but remember the reason why you were asked to do the rituals in the first place. You know, like whether it's, it's about, you know, kindness or cleanliness or self-awareness, because when you're, when you have like a lot of times rituals provide us with the, uh, with the function of stability, you know, you, you know, continuously. I remember reading this article on a plane once where they were talking about the importance of rituals. So this writer was saying that, you know, I travel a lot. When I travel, I take certain things with me. And when I arrive at my hotel room, I arrange things in a particular way. So there's something that's familiar so that I don't feel that, okay, I'm in a, in a distant land in a new place that I don't feel completely sure. out of place. And that's what rituals give us. So when you recite the Shema, when you when you do the when you do the Tefillin, etc., it, like it gives it gives you a bit of you know something that is familiar, so that you don't feel you know that you're in a in in a in a completely new place where you feel out of place. You feel there's something familiar, and that's what rituals do, and they're good. But the Quran says that don't obsess with that. 
So going through all of this, you can see that there's there's an embrace that's taking place. So you can see that the, the Quran and even the Islamic tradition has an embrace going on with it's as if you have because Judaism is the is the elder sibling and Islam is the younger sibling. So they're both taking from the same tradition because the Quran, the Prophet Muhammad describes them as being, you know, he says, right. uh, illat means they are siblings who share the same father but have different mothers. Uh, just like the children of, J- of Jacob, right? They're brothers, but they don't have the same mothers. You have four mothers, but they're still all brothers. The Prophet Muhammad says that the, the followers of Judaism and the followers of Christianity as well, because they stem from Judaism as well, and the followers of Islam are all siblings. They all share the same father, but they have different mothers. So they're not going to be exactly the same, but they do have a common heritage. And just like half siblings, they're also going to have their differences. So it's it's important to remember that we're dealing with a beautiful embrace. You have two brothers who are embracing, trying to figure things out. And sometimes people on the outside, or sometimes when people don't fully understand the scope, they might interpret it as a wrestle. Oh, they're wrestling, they're competing, they're they're fighting. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be an embrace where there's, you know, where there's dialogue of understanding. So that's what I saw in my exploration of the Quran. And of course, the Quran led me to explore the Old Testament and learn Hebrew and learn Aramaic because there are several words in the Quran that are of Hebrew or Aramaic origin or ancient Egyptian origin or, or Ethiopic origin. And if you don't know those words in those languages, you're not going to understand their context in the Quran because those are not. Arabic words. So that led me to that journey. And the more I explored, the more I studied, the more I saw the parallels and the similarities. And of course, it made me raise the question, if you have so much in common in some places where you read things that are written on the same topic by Jewish or Muslim scholars, and they're writing the exact same thing, it raises the question, then if we are so similar, then why should there be so much conflict or misunderstanding? Wow. Well, fascinating. I mean, Muhammad, thank you for such a enlightening and instructive conversation about uh, Muhammad and the Song of Songs. I had no idea about anything that you taught me and us today, and I'm so appreciative. The um, concluding question on the rabbi's husband always goes from one text, which is the sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Malroux's uh, 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And uh, he says, uh, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. He said, uh, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there's no such thing as a grown up person. Well, so let me ask you. So in all of your years as an Islamic scholar and an Islamic leader, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? I would say number one is that all people are the same, regardless. Whether you're educated, whether you're not, whether you're religious or not, I think everyone seeks basic needs. And the basic needs is we want to feel loved. We want to feel accepted as human beings. We want to feel understood. We want to have the right to happiness. And I would say that these are basics are shared by all people. So that's the first. And the second is, is you can't really understand someone until you break bread with them. And, and this whole concept of lehem, you know, in Hebrew, lehem is used for, for bread. The same word lehem in Arabic is used for meat because that was a staple of the Arabs. But the word itself, the root word revolves around merging or coming together. So lehama 
the root word means to, to come together, to combine or to bind. So it's, it's basically a time of bonding. And that's basically what happens when you eat. When you take a piece of bread, say breaking bread, you're actually creating an opportunity to bond. And, and that, I would say, is the second thing that I learned, is that when you eat with someone else, it gives you the opportunity to open up and to bond. You know, and that's how friendships are made. I think more conflicts can be avoided if people sit together around the table and share a meal once in a while and try to understand each other as human beings. Instead of, you know, I have my ego, I have my needs, and I'm not going to listen to what you have to say or, what, or who you are, but actually just put that aside and say, look, we have a common factor, a common denominator that we, can, that we can start from. And the very basic thing that all humans share that we need, and, and that's part of what living things need, is we need sustenance, we need to eat. So let's break bread together and try to understand one another. Beautiful. Well, Mohammed, uh, thank you so much for coming on The Rabbi's Husband and sharing your wisdom and your friendship with us and for writing this remarkable book, Muhammad the World Changer, An Intimate Portrait from St. Martin's Essentials and available everywhere. Thank you so much, Mark, for having me on your show. It's, uh, it's been a great pleasure again and a great honor. And thank you so much. Okay, have a All good right, day. All right, thank you. So thank you everyone for listening to my conversation with my friend Muhammad Jabara. I met Muhammad because my book on the Passover Haggadah and Muhammad's book on Muhammad were published by the same publisher who introduced us and that birthed a friendship. And here we are on The Rabbi's Husband. I'm just so delighted to share my friendship with Muhammad with everybody and for Muhammad to share his wisdom, his insights, and his knowledge with the audience at The Rabbi's Husband. So thank you for listening and next year, in Graceland. And I would like everyone who listened to this podcast and previous podcasts and God willing future podcasts to go to the rabbishusband.com and to sponsor a surgery. These are surgeries of mothers and children in Africa whose lives you can transform or save by sponsoring a surgery that is all curated, all selected, all monitored, and all administered by African Mission Healthcare, which are Christian surgeons working in Christian hospitals, serving people of all kinds all throughout Africa. So go to the rabbishusband.com where you'll see a link to sponsor surgeries for those who need it most. And Erica and I are going to match every donation made up to a million dollars to just write in the subject line, the rabbi's husband and uh, God willing, let's save some lives together. I'm Mark Gerson, and this has been The Rabbi's Husband, and thank you for listening. Please go to Apple, to Spotify, to wherever you receive podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe. I can be found at therabbishusband.com or at The Rabbi's Husband on Facebook or Instagram, and I would love to hear from you, so please email me at mark at therabbishusband.com.